0: Up the Winter Trail, the third book in this series, like the other books, deals with Powell Lake and the region surrounding it. Of course the emphasis is on the winter and trails, both from a hiking standpoint, an ATV standpoint, and even a biking standpoint on a regular pedal bike. But there are other topics too, which is a common thread throughout the series life on Powell Lake is one of those threads and winter on Powell Lake is indeed unique offering many challenges including the need for a constant supply of firewood so where do you get that firewood? part of the answer lies within a chapter called debris field the area surrounding the hole in the wall where firewood accumulates in the water waiting to be captured. So here's an excerpt from Up the Winter Trail, the chapter entitled Debris Field. The day dawns clear and crisp. The 8 a.m. temperature is minus one Celsius and the deck is covered by heavy frost. There is a faint brightness in the air as the false dawn hovers behind Gold Island. It will be two more hours before the sun pops out from the side of the ridge. The low arcing sun will then continue briefly across the southern sky before dipping behind the trees at about one o'clock just west of John's cabin number two. The white orb will continue to ride behind the line of firs for another two hours sunlight splashing weakly through the branches and onto Goat Island. Then the sun will disappear not to appear again for another 19 hours. It is one week before the shortest day of the year, and the sun's presence within the granite-walled hole is brief. In the dim light of the early morning, I watch a debris field starting to develop in the channel directly in front of our cabin. Logs of all sizes, along with many smaller sticks, drift aimlessly in the entrance to the hole wall. When the morning is nearly calm, as is usually the case, the hole is one of the places on Powell Lake where you expect floatsome. This is particularly true on days like this when the lake level is high. The rising water accompanied by waves breaks loose accumulated shoreline wood which drifts in whatever direction the wind and waves dictate. As is typical on this part of the lake in the morning, the drift is southward toward First Narrows and inward towards the hole. It isn't a fast flow but it's noticeable from our deck. A lot of this wood is perfect potential energy, already weather cured by extended residence on the shore. Energy awaiting capture. The tin boat sits high and dry on the dock and it takes some time to get the boat and me going. Besides the multiple layers of clothing that are required today I need to pack rope, a hammer, log staples, and other essentials for my firewood collection trip. The tin boat's outboard motor is an old gem, but you shouldn't rely on it, so I pack an important piece of equipment, a satellite phone, and a waterproof container. Using a bucket, I splash some water onto the deck surrounding the boat to make the launch from the dock easier. Margie and I push together to slide the tin boat into the water. One, two, three, Using the bow rope, I entice the now floating boat back to the dock. We hop aboard and settle into our seats. My position is at the stern, where I give the outboard motor its customary series of rope poles for a cold start. The engine fires on the third fully choked pole. It's a good engine, when it's in a good mood. I warm up the motor, reducing the choke until it runs unassisted a tough chore with limited throttle control during idle. I motion to Margie to release the bow line. When the time is right before the engine dies I shift forward and quickly twist the throttle to prevent the engine from stalling. We accelerate out and around the Campion and then out of the breakwater. As soon as we clear the entrance I add more throttle. I want to get up to speed before the spark plugs fall. It's a fine line between letting the engine warm thoroughly before advancing the power and facing a stalled engine that will not restart. Today I throttle up quickly enough to get on plane without faltering. I maneuver the boat in a full-power winding route through the debris field, providing the old 15-horse Everwood with a few moments to clear her plugs. Ahead, in the center of the channel, is the biggest log of all. It's not ideal for firewood since its large girth will require splitting, but it will provide several days of winter heat. Getting to this prize requires zigzagging between other logs and hundreds of pieces of even smaller floating chunks of timber. We circle the targeted log to give the motor more warm up time and to get a better idea of the log's adequacy as firewood. Then, before dealing with this log, I point at the bow back towards the main section of the debris field. Margie is huddled in the front seat, facing backwards to escape the cold flow of air over the bow. Now she turns to survey the prospective crop of firewood. I slow to idle, and the boat drifts forward through the wood in its accompanying frothy swirl of scum. Margie moves back to the middle seat on the port side, which gives her better access to the water. She'll scoop up small pieces from her side. I'll aim for larger wood for pickup by me at the stern's opposite side. Often I am able to split the difference by aiming between smaller wood chunks on the left for Margie while I simultaneously scoop up larger harder to handle logs on my side. Some logs are so big we must work together. One of us snags it while the other uses their arms to muscle the wooden hulk aboard the tin boat. Within a half hour, logs and fragments are stowed everywhere. Wood juts up and out over the gunnels, the bow, and alongside the motor at the stern. As we troll for firewood, I keep a close eye on those logs that cannot be hefted aboard the boat. We've become good judges of the size and weight of logs that we can manhandle, taking into account the waterlogged condition of the wood. Once in a while we overestimate our capabilities in a piggish attempt to snag a log too big for our combined strength. In such cases, the log gets almost into the boat before we have to release it with a cold splash. Logs that are obviously too big to harvest by our grab and capture method are candidates for towing. As we pass these logs, I evaluate their merits. We can only handle a few towed logs each trip, so decisions on which logs to pull are taken seriously as we crawl past logs too big to grab by hand Margie and I compare notes yellow cedar announces Margie that's excellent for firewood burning hot and providing a natural sweet scent but if it must be split that means extra work it's a trade-off potential heat energy from the log versus the kinetic energy it will take to split the difficulty of hoisting the log onto the cabin's deck is also a factor. The ideal log is fat enough to barely fit through the fireplace door without the need for splitting. And the longer, the better. The previous summer, Margie swam out to an incoming debris field and frog kicked her way back to the cabin, clutching a log like a drowning swimmer she rescued. It took twenty cuts, but no splits, to prepare this log for burning. The 30-foot length of this near-perfect firewood specimen serves as a model for the ideal firewood log. That one will be tough to cut, I note, as a log slides past to the right. Really gnarled. Let's leave it. With practice, you learn which logs will be an excessive challenge for the chainsaw and axe. You remember what a tough hunk looks like and you avoid such logs in the future. Often it's a combination of wood color and the swirl of the grain that provides the essential clues. The boat is now getting so full that we ride low in the water. We discuss the remaining toba logs and select two to hook. Margie reaches into our boat knapsack and pulls out a heavy rope and two log staples. She hands them back to me. I have gathered the hammer from under the seat and another snatching rope that is always ready in the back of the boat. I swing the tin boat against the first towable log and let the boat slide along it as I ready the hammer and a staple. Near the end of the log I shift the outboard into neutral, position the staple, and give it a whack with the hammer. The staple sets easily and I deliver a few more swift blows to secure it. The twang of metal meeting metal is loud and reassuring. With each whack, I feel less resonance from the hammer as the staple pushes firmly into the wood. Two quick loops with the rope will hold long enough to get the log back to the cabin. I tie the other end of the rope to the starboard corner of the stern in a metal corner gap at the transom that seems built for the task. As I shift into gear and twist the throttle, we accelerate slowly away from the log. The 30-foot rope becomes taut in the water. I feel a firm jolt as the log grabs hold behind the boat. For a few moments, the log is in control, slipping off to the side and pulling the stern with it. We plow partly sideways and partly forward for a few feet. Then the boat becomes the master as the log straightens out behind us. I aim at the second log we have selected and decelerate gradually as we approach to prevent our trailing log from ramming the stern. I repeat the stapling process and we are off again with two logs in tow. They vie for a position behind the boat, the ropes becoming entangled briefly and then separating as their towing paths settle down. I drive without much attention to the logs. Once you get up to speed, which is only a few knots with logs in tow, the boat rides nicely. It's amazing how little force is needed to keep a log going once things settle down. Moving logs in the water in general is a low energy process. Even huge logs can be guided through the water to a new location with very little muscle power. The buoyancy of the water takes care of the weight. Approaching the breakwater I slow gradually. As the logs catch up with the boat I shorten the ropes. I hand one rope to Margie and I keep the other. We guide the logs tucked within a few feet of the stern into the entrance. Now I point the bow at the rear of the cabin, where the firewood float is awaiting. We are home with a harvest of natural energy that will last us a winter's week. It isn't high-tech, but it works for us. Not bad for a few hours' labor. the author of the Up the Lake series. I thank you for listening to this podcast, and I invite you to uh, check out the recently overhauled Powell River Books website at www.powellriverbooks.com.